0: Down South Street in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, really busy around here. Um, yeah, I'm on my way to Dmitri Tomasco's house to chat with him, probably about some music theory. Uh, we'll see what happens. All right, I'm at Dimitri's door. Hopefully. This is the right house.
1: Hey, Charlie. Hey. How's it going?
0: Nice to meet you. Wait, are you doing it already? I did just for the intro, (laughs) just because it's kind of fun.
2: This is my son, Lucas. Lucas is the one with the machine.
0: Oh. Hi. Hi. How's it going?
2: You can't shoot at people unless they give you permission.
0: Hi. Nice to meet you.
2: Do you want anything? like like He's podcasting. Yeah. Do you want, like, a uh, drink? You have, we have seltzer water. We have beer.
0: Uh, water have sounds good. Else. Yeah, seltzer water. Okay. You guys have a great house.
2: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, do you live in Philly? Um,
2: Minnesota. Not so Yeah. <laughs> tour?
0: I'm on a tour wow. across the country. That's and
2: right.
0: Uh, yeah. Okay. I, Come on down. All right. <laughs> so, Dimitri. Yes. has been, like... Good. I think three years okay. since I yeah. interviewed you yes. over Skype. Mm-hmm. Um, no idea I would be actually meeting you in person someday, but here I am yeah. in your basement.
2: In my basement, right? But a lot less creepy than that sounds on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a very homey basement.
0: Yeah. Very kid friendly.
2: Yeah. Hey. A, the toys used to be all over our house, and now they're all over the basement.
0: Cool. And I think I remember Lucas had helped out with the song right. for Yes, the intro of your episode.
2: Yep. Yep. That's our band Desperate Cannons.
0: I suppose just the fact that Dad is a composer is like A little bit of a motivator for him? Yeah,
2: well, those things can always go the other way,
0: too. You know, at various points
2: he said, Dad, I'm not going to be a musician. To which I respond, you know, hooray. Um, But I see him doing a lot of music, and he does like music. And I actually work really hard to make music. When I was a kid, my parents would sort of push me into the room with the piano, close the door, and say, come out in 15 minutes, you know? And I try to really make piano something that we do together. Um, so it's not low. And we take lots of breaks for, he gets computer game breaks after he does a little bit of piano as a little bit of a endorphin hit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, our three-year-old daughter has started playing piano because she sees her brother doing it. Oh, cool. It is That's that's pretty neat because she, she just wanted the computer game breaks and figured <laughs> this was a way to get yeah. it. One thing that I am not sure about with both of the kids, I really don't emphasize reading at all. And kids have such good memories, especially kids who don't read, that they do everything by memory, you know. And just getting the, the fingers moving and on the piano and playing their songs, you know, the little the girl can't read English, and so, I, I but that, that could be wrong. I think if I went another approach, maybe I could, they would become amazing sight readers or something but but it sort of seems easier and more natural just to focus on teaching them what they have to do and then build up the the muscle control to do it
0: mm-hmm. um, i think the last time we talked we had talked about um raising a baby in an atonal world oh yeah yeah <laughs> so, so you didn't do that
2: we didn't do yeah. that no no I, th- I think did i mention there there are yeah. rumors like yeah, so somebody daughter, maybe did that. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it has been done. Actually, there, I think there's reliable, there are two linguists who I think did do it. Oh. Yeah, we should I'm really Google to, that. Yeah. It so doesn't work that very
0: well. <laughs> you can't avoid tonal music just well, in yeah, the world.
2: That's the big confound. Like I was break?
0: just walking down South Street, and, and the, there's like four different songs going on at once, so...
2: So they, uh, that that's starting to generate a tonality right there. That's true. If you stand in the place where <laughs> they're appropriately balanced. That's actually, that was another debate long ago about, you know, was the notion of polytonality, was it even coherent? And there are various people, Alan Ford at Yale and Peter Vanden Turen at Santa Barbara who were really like, polytonality makes no sense and they, they had these approaches to Stravinsky that didn't, make any reference to polytonality and uh, I remember you know I, I believe polytonality makes sense and this my friend Dan Harrison who teaches at Yale it's like well you brought up those kinds of situations like suppose you put one song in one ear and another song in another ear we know this is possible right so what then yeah.
0: <laughs> well here, here's a music physics question all right that My friends and I have debated about... Okay. And I just thought of it again now. All right. If a car was passing you and they had their music blasting, and it's clear that the Doppler effect influences, like, the pitch of it. Yeah. Slows a little bit. Yeah. But I started to realize, like, I feel like the song slowed down also. Can the... Like actual beats per minute of a song, would it be noticeably slower when you go from the car coming at you and going away from you?
2: So, my. We're gonna have to talk to a physicist and calculate this. My gut feeling is it would be slower, but you shouldn't be able to really notice it. That would be. That would might. But it might be some weird psychophysical thing where as you hear the pitch drooping, you're kind of imagining it slowing down
0: yeah because i I was just thinking about like when i when you slow down music in uh in audio software like it doesn't take much to make the pitch change but i guess the speed
2: yeah i say no i think i think that that's something you're projecting onto it but Hmm. that would would be surprising
0: yeah because then I feel like it's more of, like, a weird time-traveling aspect that yeah. probably doesn't exist. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, that's my vote. We, got, we can, <laughs> we can well, find a physicist to answer the question.
0: Okay. Um, well, so, what have you been up to lately, I guess?
2: Since we talked, probably, you know, I think I felt like I'd devote a lot of time to doing theory. And so, since we talked, I think I've been mostly focused on doing music. A little bit of theory here and there. I have a third CD coming out probably this fall called Rube Goldberg Variations, which awesome the The title piece is a piece I'm really happy about is it's a piece for brass quintet and prepared piano, which is pretty much the weirdest ensemble imaginable. <laughs> um, but it turned out well and, and I'm very happy with that <laughs> One thing I have been doing recently is thinking a little bit more about theory from a compositional point of view i don't I don't know if we talked about this last time, but you know even though i I like doing theory, I felt like a lot of composers were really kind of ruined by theory and a lot of twentieth century music was set on the wrong track by theory and focusing on stuff that you can't really hear and so in my own work. It was really super important for me for a long time not to not to be misled by theory and just to try to write the music that I, I really wanted to hear. Uh, and lately, last year, I wrote this orchestra piece called The Thousand Faces of Form, and it was for this concert in Canada that sort of was about geometry and music. And it sort of led me to maybe think again about whether, you know, maybe there was a role for theory in my composing life if I did it well.
0: Yeah. What is different about that, like using specifically your geometry theory
2: stuff,
0: how did the piece turn out sounding different than, like, your other composition?
2: Well... One way it sounded different is it's just a little more chromatic, and the, the, the material is just a little... You know, I started with this big chromatic chord. And then I started sort of using theory ideas to sort of ask, well, what does this chord naturally want to do in its own habitat? What would this chord... Speaking metaphorically here, but but sort of what structures are indigenous to this chord and and I mean I, I don't know how technical do we get on this oh podcast? we can
0: get technical in this one
2: um, so back up for a second, and, and let's say one of the big projects of twentieth century music, I would say a project that everybody agrees on is that all sounds are in principle available to the composer, right so I, I think that that even Shostakovich, you know, think of him as a supertonal composer. He has many atonal passages in, in his music. And I think there's this general feeling that all sounds are available to us. But what we don't really have is techniques for working in the space. Even just let's talk about plain vanilla chords you can play on the piano. Okay, we, want, we know what to do if you play a C major chord. We've got a lot of idioms for that. But if you play something that doesn't really have strong tonal references or relevance, we don't really know what to do. And, you know, 12-tone music, that offered one solution for... But but people don't like that solution that much. There are ideas about sort of thinking about subsets and what chords fit into this chord... So, one of the things I was thinking about is sort of using voice leading ideas and so you play a chord and and these chords naturally inhabit certain kinds of structures that appear all throughout the space of chords and so what you find is these you can make kind of parallels and and isomorphisms between sort of the kinds of structures you might do when you're working with a two note chord and the kind of structures you might encounter when you're working with a six note chord or a seven note chord. And so there's sort of correspondences and, and similar approaches that 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 provide one answer to this question of like, are there general techniques for working in the space of all possible chords? Hmm.
0: Yeah. I when you're talking about that, it just brought me back to thinking about the composer Messian. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because I, I feel like he kind of had worked out a system that was, I don't know. It seemed like when I listened to his pieces, they, they all feel like they're very planned yeah. and in the same sound world. But it's yeah. like an alternate
2: world. Yeah, yeah, world. yeah. Right. So I would say that that's a great thing that theory can do is sort of keep you consistently in a sound world that's maybe a little different from your home sound world or your normal sound world or something like that. Messian, you know, one of the things I I feel is improvisers are always theorists at some sort of basic level because an improviser needs to have some answer to the question, what note comes next? And that answer, you know, and that answer has to be immediately available in the fingertips. And so Messian was an improviser. I I actually heard him improvise one time when I was in college. Oh. And... You know, I mean, his weakness is that the theory is, as an intellectual piece of music theory, it's a little bit idiosyncratic. So it's, mm. here's the chord of nature. you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. That's he had okay. A- it's almost like a personal symbolism or something like that, yeah. as opposed to, it's not science, and it's not even on the border of science. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a mystical collection of musical materials that suited him super well as a composer. But I think partly for that reason, it's also very... Personal, right? So you, you can't imagine someone else taking his theory ideas and doing something of their own with them. Yeah. That, that would be a very weird thing to do, I think.
0: Um, well, and he was also... Was he synesthetic?
2: I think, I think he was, or? yeah. Which is yeah. another super personal thing. Yeah. Because uh, I think everyone who's synesthetic is a little bit different. You know, jazz theory is a, another example of jazz people and I say this in my book, they kind of worked out in very careful detail, they worked out a theory that, among other things, incorporates a lot of the ideas of Ravel and W. C. And, again, there's just this practical need to sort of, in that case also, to communicate with an ever-changing cast of musicians, right? So who are you playing with tonight? You've got to have shared principles that, that can allow you to play together with people you don't know super well.
0: Yeah. When you're starting to think about, like, creating your own sound world yeah. within a piece, yeah, how do you do that, and at the same time get people to follow along with it, mm-hmm. and at the same time without like using regular tonal right patterns, they might be like, ah, uh, well, I just wish it would resolve here to a one or something,
2: yeah. But I'm not sure I can fully answer that question, but I'm going to do the politician's thing of answering a nearby question. I mean, one thing that really helped me recently is, is thinking that, realizing there's actually two layers of theory, okay? And one layer of theory is stuff I talk about in chapter one of my book. And this is kind of what I think of like as the theory of the immediate sonic experience, What is your music like? Does it use all 12 notes all the time, or does it limit itself to a smaller collection of pitches? Does it use consonant harmonies? Does it use dissonant harmonies? Do the melodies move by short distances? Is there a tonal center, a note that is emphasized a lot? This kind of theory is, is really the sort of theory that is going to be in our heads no matter what we're writing and no matter what we're listening to, right? It's kind of like the space of possible musics and and being organized about where you are within the space of possible musics. That kind of theory has nothing to do with the specific organization in detail, like are you using a series ordered in time? Are you using a canon? Are you using sort of some complicated chord progression that derives from the geometry of music? And so one of the things I realized for myself is I was kind of obscuring or confusing two questions about theory, one of which is, like, are you paying attention to the big, large, uh, macro features of your music? And the other is, does your music perhaps have hidden structure that isn't totally accessible to the audience? And really, the question of whether you have hidden structure or not is a lot less pressing if you are paying very careful attention to these global features of music that everyone can hear. And what I realized is that for me my big problem was with theory was when the l- detailed structure complicated 12-tone patterns Milton Babbitt would set up would cause the composer not to be paying attention to these large questions about consonants and dissonance or, you know, energy trajectory or expression or whatever. Once I realized those were actually two kind of separate realms It helped me to relax a little bit. Mm. And it's also related to, so this last semester I taught a class on Stravinsky, Rite of Spring, and Mahler 9. I've been thinking a lot about Beethoven. And I realized that both Beethoven and Stravinsky, who are two of my favorite composers, and who everyone realizes, or everyone agrees these composers are super expressive and forceful, they're kind of theory nerds. You know, and there's all this stuff in the Rite of Spring that's that derives from some little musical pattern that's theoretically incredibly sophisticated and interesting. And there's all this stuff in Beethoven that's, like, really theoretical, you know, he he got... So I, what I realized is for a lot of them, a lot of composers, the material they start with is theoretically interesting, and then what they do with it is expressively powerful. And that sort of was a model for me, you know, use the theory to generate the material, but not to constrain... What you're doing with that,
0: yeah. So, like, in a practical sense, I guess <laughs> for people who, <laughs> yeah, who are composing, right? What, maybe it's like they get into this world and just keep trying, um, just get like the sound of their piece in their head mm-hmm. over and over and just try improvising more with that sound in mind, maybe,
2: yeah. Well, so the specific ideas I'm working with now is, like, kind of whatever chord you play like in my orchestra piece the basic chord of the piece is this big seven note chord and it's almost a stack of fifths but it's got a lot of chromatic notes in it, so F, G, C, D, E B flat, E flat (laughs) The realization that I I sort of started with is that every chord that you can sit at the piano and play lives in a little circle of related chords. And you can talk about sort of moving up and moving down along that circle, and you can talk about moving three steps up and two steps down. And then you can talk about stepping off that circle to nearby chords. And so what I would do is I would just start with a chord, like this big chromatic chord, and then ask myself, so what is its circle and then i would write out its circle and these circles are you can think of them as the different modes of the chord and so when i what i would do is in a different movement for a movement i would maybe come up with one of these chords then generate its circle and then generate the nearby related circles of chords and kind of use those as my raw material <laughs>
0: It's inspiring me to try in that style, too. Uh, you should have... I think you should do, like, the coloring book equivalent of <laughs> what you're talking about for composers to try.
2: Well, actually, what I did with this piece is I... Once I sort of realized what was going on, I'm actually going to write a paper where I explain the underlying theory and then use the piece to illustrate it. So, in movement one, here's what I do, and here's a... Actually, in this case, I wrote software, so because I so I didn't want to make mistakes and I, so I, I wrote software where you can give it the basic chord and it'll generate the chord circle for you and you can generate arbitrary patterns like move up 3 steps and go to the neighboring circle and it'll output all of that stuff and oh um you can even cool. you can give it a series of chords that you've improvised and it'll tell you what the underlying structure is
0: so when robots start composing <laughs> I feel like you could yeah. just give them this language to work in and then yeah, they could just take off with it, maybe.
2: <laughs> well, that's still the thing. I mean, it just gives you chords, you know? Yeah. And you still have to do something with them. I like the idea of robots as our compositional helpers. So, you know, I wrote this computer program to help me do the calculations because I'm going to screw them up. And in any case, it's too annoying to do the calculations. The real problem with with computer composers is that human composers come so cheap, you know what I mean? Like, that it's not clear what savings you're ever going to (laughs) get, right? Because there's endless amounts of people out there who are willing to write you music practically for free as long as you play it or put it in your video game or whatever. So taking that work away and giving it to computers doesn't save you anything at all, right? So, At this point: yeah yeah, well, so that's, that's what I see as the big obstacle because um, yeah, we just we just work super, super cheaply mm-hmm. and, and you know, I mean, okay, suppose you're writing a giant video game and you need eight hours of music. fine. What's that, what will that cost you like eight, thousand dollars, right? And right now, having an automatic music generator that could generate 8,000 hours of music, that's not going to improve anybody's product, right? Yeah. Or an elevator be. that never repeats its music as opposed <laughs> to an elevator that just has 36 hours of music. See? So, yeah, I mean, automatic composition is a fascinating subject, but it's not its not entirely clear why we want to do it on, yeah. a, on a practical level.
0: So... I have a question for you from my previous guests. okay, um because I in episode one hundred I started doing a question chain from
2: guest okay to guest. all right yeah,
0: so the the last guy I interviewed, Spencer Stern, is a first year music major, okay, and his question was, if you could go back and change anything about your undergrad oh, music man. <laughs> experience, what would that be?
2: ah. Uh. Well, okay, on a practical level, it would be having a, someone to teach me jazz early on. I mean, basically, I jazz was not taught to the music majors at Harvard where I was in 87 to 91 or 92. And, in fact, the music library did not have jazz CDs in it. And to get the jazz CDs, you had to go to a second music library, which was half a mile away, and literally in the top corner of an eight story building down a dark abandoned <laughs> hallway there was a, a second music library that had that had jazz huh. and i remember making the trip cuz i'd heard about art tatum and wanted to check him out and i like put this cd in the cd player and just it blew my mind and i think i was a junior or a senior when that happened and i really felt robbed i was like wow you know, there's this world of unbelievable music, every bit as good as Beethoven and Bach, and twenty years old, thirty years old, and 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 it's been kept from me. I, re- I really felt like there had been an injustice. So, so on a practical level, that would be the thing I think that I would, I would have changed most. Yes. But also, I mean, I had these composition teachers who were super modern composers and were not at all interested in tonality. So while we're fixing things, I would also like to request some (laughs) some different composition teachers. (laughs) And then the the last thing is, you know, I recently, on Facebook, I, I mentioned that I feel like I'm now finally writing the kind of music, the music that I very distantly could envision when I was in my 20s and starting to compose. And I think I had no idea of just how long it would take to get to that place. So if I had had the knowledge that this was not a five-year project but a 20-year project, I think that would have just helped me out a little bit, you know.
0: Uh, it wouldn't have deterred you from... Well, that's the big
2: question. <laughs> I hope it wouldn't have deterred me. I think it just would have relaxed me a little bit because, mm. you know, anyway. Mm-hmm. Because when you're younger, your critical faculties tend to develop faster than your creative faculties, right? So any ambitious undergraduate composer understands that their music is not as good as Beethoven's music. And it's very clear what the problems with your music are, usually, to the composer. And that can be a very crushing and debilitating realization. Because if you're ambitious, you want to hold yourself to the highest standards, but yeah. you're just not able, <laughs> you know? And so the question of how you manage that fight between critical realism and the ambition to do the best possible work you can is 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 really, for some people, is very challenging and causes some people to really have a hard time writing, including me when I was younger.
0: Yeah. So do you have a question for my next guest?
2: Do I get to know who it is? Or uh,
0: well... Probably the next person I'll be talking to is Jonathan Roberts, who does, he does composing for slot machines.
2: Oh. Uh. All right. Give me a, how about I, can, can we come back to, let's, let's keep okay. talking. and then Let's keep,
0: sure. Yeah. Something will come up. Yeah. So, I saw that you were giving some talks, on um, like the origins of tonality.
2: Well, so that is a big project, um. For a long time, for years, before we did our last po- podcast, I've been kind of analyzing pieces of music and then putting them into a computer-readable score or form and, and combining a computer-readable score with these computer-readable analyses. I started realizing that, okay, like, you know... Doing these analyses of Beethoven scores is unbelievably boring because it's just like one, five, one, five. It's the same three chords over and over again. Even compared to Mozart or Bach, Beethoven's harmonic language is really limited and and it's just, it's not about the chords in this. It's not about harmony. The music isn't. But I started realizing, boy, if you try to do this kind of analysis of like Thomas Morley. Do you know Thomas Morley? No. He's, he's a great, great composer that no one knows. He's one of the first English madrigalists. He's, I think, the only one of Shakespeare's contemporaries to set Shakespeare's words to music during his lifetime. So he, he was famous around 1600. And so he wrote these Monteverdi-esque madrigal-type pieces, but they're all in English. And so they, they're super fun, and they're much more accessible than, if you don't know Italian, Uh, So I started realizing, well, what if you start analyzing that music? And I started finding, well, there's a lot of one and five chords in this music. And then you look at Palestrina and the Pope Marcellus Mass, and there's a lot of one, five, and four chords in that music. And and because I do all this electronically, you can actually do statistics. And, you, you know, there's more four chords than there should be. And there's way more four chords in Palestrina than in Josquin. And so... Yeah, I I think that I'm able to tell a nice narrative about the development of the harmonic conventions that we know from Bach, where instead of seeing those things as spontaneously erupting, you know, at 1604 or, you know, in this decade, you actually see them developing over the span of 150 years incredibly gradually as Mm. composers gradually narrow their harmonic focus and start to zero in on certain kinds of patterns and certain kinds of chords. And it's a beautiful example of a kind of pattern that's relatively easy to see with computers and large-scale data analysis, but it's really hard to see, you know, one score at a time. Cool. Yeah. There's some other stuff I've been doing about rock harmony and using geometry to explain rock harmony and, and a lot of these weird progressions you find in classic rock you know one flat three four one just fall out of this story in a very natural way and instead of looking like deformations of classical harmony they just look as like an alternative idiom that that makes sense on its own terms Hmm. so so that is something that sounds cool (laughs) Yeah. well I mean right now our education system puts the Bach through Brahms tradition at the core and then has everything else sort of imagines everything else in relation to that core. And I think a much better idea is to see modality broadly construed as the core and then the Bach Brahms tradition as a sort of special case refinement of that. Hmm.
0: What kind of bands would you say like, started this different Ye- modality? Yeah,
2: so as far as I can tell... The answer to this, the basic answer to this, is really the Beatles. And the Beatles really invent modern harmony. And you can sort of see them doing it. They'll take little pieces of pre-existing harmony, like um, the 5-4-1 turnaround that is in the blues. They sort of remove it from their from its context and just kind of use it as a thing. And so you can see them removing these pieces and repurposing them. And so as far as I can tell, you know, they're isolated... Songs before them, but it's really them who, who sort of lay down this new set of harmonic laws. Mm. Um,
0: That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. The, it just comes back to the Beatles being awesome. It, it really yeah. does. Yes, and, <laughs> and, and
2: like truly inventing a new kind of harmony. Yeah, and and to me, just the super surprising thing is, I had always assumed that the '60s rock modality was just a continuation of a folk modality that existed in pubs and bars for hundreds of years. And that if you went to England in 1840 or 1710 or 1930 and you went off the beaten path into a pub, you know, in Wales or Scotland, or you could hear people playing like um, Scarborough Fair in Dorian Mode and that there just was always this modal music everywhere. And as far as I can tell, that is not true. And that the modality of 60s rock is a reinvention, is an imagination of something that, that actually didn't exist. Hmm. And because if you listen to the folk music of the 1930s, or the, the recorded folk music from the start of recording to about 1960, you find tunes that we think of as modal tunes, like House of the Rising Sun. The earliest recording of House of the Rising Sun is a tonal one four five one major key rendition of this and so you find either unaccompanied modal tunes or modal tunes being squished into functional harmony but you really don't find that sort of harmonically accompanied dorian mode thing that we know from the 60s hmm. and so yeah that is a really surprising idea is that the modal tradition actually just totally died out and these 60s guys like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and the Birds, were reinventing a non existent modality just as much as Debussy was, you know, hmm. and 60 years later, 80 yeah. years later.
0: They just made it super popular. <laughs> they made it super
2: popular? Yeah.
0: I wonder what it would take for another band to like be that relatively innovative yeah. and change stuff that much. I mean, <laughs> hip hop,
2: right? Yeah. It wasn't one band, but that was a totally new way of thinking about popular music.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: The thing about the Beatles is, yes, they invented it, but the thing they invented was so elemental, right? Only using major chords, you know, and, and using these major chords to harmonize these like really simple melodies like three, two, one, and then you harmonize them. You, you know, so it's not just that they were influential and we were we, everybody else did whatever the Beatles did, but it's what they did is like optimized for, you know, our tradition and and who those listeners are. So they're taking these familiar objects, core major chords, putting them together in totally new ways, that also made melodic sense and a kind of a new kind of harmonic sense yeah so it's not just so you'd have to discover something equally fundamental from that sort of theory point of view yeah
0: i mean i guess from that perspective like hip-hop the sampling is like the familiar thing yeah
2: yeah
0: take sampled voices and mess with them totally
2: yeah the idea of building a music out of recorded snippets
0: yeah. Hmm.
2: I got a question for your next guy. Okay. But it's a little bit unfair. So you can tell him I feel bad about <laughs> my question. All right. Which is that when he's doing his composing, does he ever worry about the ethical side of slot machines and, and gambling and people who maybe are being influenced by his music to get rid of their money?
0: I actually asked him that because uh, he he's a repeat guest. Oh, too. okay. Um, All right. And the way they answered it was really interesting. It was actually three of the guys okay. at this place, and they kind of essentially were saying like, "Well, we're just gonna make the music as good as it can be because mm-hmm. a lot of people are there to have fun too." Yeah. But yeah, it's not. It they do think about it too. It's like yeah, think. Like,
2: All right, so then my next question after that. (laughs) Well, so I would like to know, I mean, I would like to know about the idioms of slot machine music and how it would compare, say, to earlier video game music and, like, is there a distinction between, you know, is there stuff that you can do in slot machine music that you couldn't do in other kinds of, like, Game Boy music? That's a good question.
0: Well, Dimitri, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you here okay and thanks for inviting me to your house here
2: thank you for coming by
0: yeah It's time now for a Song Spotlight. As one of my Kickstarter rewards, I said that any listener who donated at that tier could get 30 seconds of their music featured on the show. And since Dimitri and I were talking about robotic composers, I thought now might be the perfect time to tell you about Marc-Andre Monjon's music. He's been making computer-based music up in Quebec, Canada, and he sent me his composition, Piece 146. Here's what he had to say about it. Over the last year or so, I wrote a piece of software that composes algorithmic music. I created a database to hold the musical metadata I need, like notes, keys, scales, or modes, as well as logic to generate music using some basic rules. The software starts by inventing a chord progression, by moving between logical scale degrees for major or minor music. For example, in major, if it's on a 5 chord, it knows it can go to a 1 or a 6. Then it writes voices over that chord progression, using mostly chord tones, but sneaking in the occasional non-chord tone. This creates algorithmic compositions that usually sound very tonal, not too random. Every piece generated has a number. I listen to it, and if I like it, I work with it. Piece 146 was the 146th piece generated by my software. poser assistant If you want to check out more of Marc Andre's music, go to soundcloudcom monjon, which is spelled M O N G E O N. Thanks so much Marc Andre for helping support the tour. I really appreciate it.
1: the location. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, I'm here on a train to New York with Jonathan Roberts. Hello, everybody. Yeah. So, Jonathan, you might remember from, I have no idea what episode number, but um, we talked about him composing for Slot Machines. Yep. So, yeah.
1: Coolest job ever.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm really excited we're going to go. Check out your offices at High Five Studios, and yeah, it's right in World Trade Center 1, right?
1: Yeah, we're on the uh, Metro North train, and it's a a cool 75-minute ride down, and then a little subway time, and then uh, up to the 59th floor of the Trade Center Tower. Awesome. Who knows what will happen then? (laughs)
0: We just barely caught this train, too.
1: Yeah. Charlie said he would be late, but then I was even later. <laughs> we had a train pulled up, and I got the ticket while the train was, the doors were open, and we jumped right on. Yeah. Like Jason Bourne. <laughs> Two Jason Bournes.
0: The nerdy versions. Yeah. <laughs> you are saying this is where you listen to Composer Quest, usually?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I got the real Charlie McCarran today. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, this is, I sit and just kick back with my composer quest, look at the Hudson River,
3: uh,
0: so what have you been up to for the last, I don't know, half year since I uh, um, talked
1: to you? Babies, just, uh, having babies, just yeah. the one, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got a, a newborn in the mix and a, and a toddler, so.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you're pretty fun. Got used to it the first time at least a little bit.
1: Yeah, the second one's definitely easier. Yeah. I guess the rumors are true. So okay. Well, this one's more fall amusing fall. than terrifying. So.
0: <laughs> it's pretty fun. Still have time for some music on the side?
1: Yeah, still still writing. Uh, I write Bible music and slot machine music. Those are my two <laughs> two uh, passions, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so i got a song cycle on, on biblical cities that I'm doing and a, uh, a slot machine on, on uh, turkeys Those are the two, <laughs> two uh, oh. projects I'm currently doing. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Well, I have to say your intro theme for your episode was like probably <laughs> my favorite, at ah. least from a sonic perspective. There's so much going on there. Yeah, um, festive. If you still have that file, I think that'd be pretty fun to, like, yeah. look peek in at it and see what you actually did with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, we can we can fire it up. Yeah, we get to the office. <laughs> Sweet.
0: All right, well, I'll just start recording' not yeah um i I was already treated to Eldo's story about helping out a the homeless incoherent man. naked co- homeless man yeah. uh, <laughs> there's a form of music to him uh, so we're here in the studio. Instruments on one side. The other side is a beautiful view out Hudson across. Bay. Yeah, Hudson Bay. Hudson
4: Bay. Hudson Bay. Statue of Liberty. Statue yeah. Yeah. You can see Staten Island in Jersey. Ellis Island. Governor's Island. i going Yeah. I'm right. just list yeah.
0: <laughs> so would you guys want to gather around and, like, say, say we who, who you are? Some barbershop? So, uh, so, like la, 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 Who's
5: got the pitch pipe? La, 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 la. You are a pitch pipe. Oh,
6: we, somebody's got perfect pitch over here. He's is the human really pitch rock. Really he's oh. the perfect
5: pitch guy. Right? <laughs> we test it throughout the day. Yeah, he could sneeze. We yell yeah, out like. notes, and he has to sing it. Give, and me, and check give me an A. <laughs> See, it's like, oh, it before, I, I'm close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you yeah, you got, got it. it close close. His skull is A.
6: <laughs>
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, three of you I interviewed before. Jonathan, who yep. I took the train in with. And Nick Tardif, and Aldo Perez, yes sir, who is the boss around here? (laughs) (laughs) Boss.
6: I I believe boss has a th
0: at the end, (laughs) and it's got to be wet.
7: Hey,
6: boss.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So who who else is here? Perfect pitch guy, Uh, introduce yourself. (laughs) My my name is Michael Butterley.
8: I am the sound assistant in QA. For the sound department I was just running sessions and testing the games To make sure all the sounds work correctly And I have
0: perfect pitch so <laughs> Great Who else is here? Yeah. <laughs> Working at it <laughs> <laughs> I'm Maria DeSena I'm a sound designer and composer At High 5 Games
5: Cool yeah. uh, And uh, Matthew Talmadge. I too, sound designer, composer here
0: I figured we could just kick it off with a question from my previous guest, because... Not
5: that Kevin MacLeod guy. No, it's not oh, Kevin okay. MacLeod. <laughs> <laughs> right. Although, okay. that, that was... That just like, cool. man, oh, right. that guy's badgering exactly. us now.
0: That was an amazing coincidence that, <laughs> yeah, Kevin happened to know you guys, and I just happened to be interviewing you right after him, so... <laughs> no, we lived
5: with Jonathan. That's right. Yeah. That was the funny thing. Yeah. Our old roommates. Yeah. So
1: we've shared the same keyboard. <laughs> We started
5: doing the, the comp- composition stuff for this company, like part time, and I'd go over to Jonathan's place, and we'd be hanging out in the kitchen taking a break, and there'd be Kevin in his underwear all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's so like, I was like, who is? Who's that guy? <laughs> Does he have pants? Pant? He <laughs> <laughs> only had one pant
9: on. So we're
0: kicking off. Sorry. So, um, question, question. so the question and we're out of time. And
1: we're out of time. Yeah. <laughs> this so, is why he's ending his podcast. Yeah. <laughs> 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 like
0: well, us, see, I usually part. don't interview six people at the same time, <laughs> so <nice> you know. <laughs> So the previous guest was the music theorist Dimitri Tomasko. Uh teaches at Princeton and he wrote this book Geometry of Music.
5: I yeah. have that book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to recuse he... myself right now because <laughs> I'm way into music and geometry. So <laughs> it's up to you guys. Yeah. His question <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, his question is uh What's the difference between like video game composing and slot machine composing? And like, did they start in the same place historically? Like slot machines, did they have the same kind of music as old video games?
4: I think there's definitely similarities because because if you listen to like a lot of the one arm bandit type slot machines, they're they're very ar- like kind of arcade game sounds a lot of times. Almost. <laughs> yeah, they have the same with, hardware. Like, I
9: imagine.
0: Yeah. Since then, I think you know most video games are more telling a long-term story that has time to develop, and we have to kind of get the idea of what's happening, especially the video slots, which are very story-based and genre-based. Like, we have to do that really fast, because there's not a lot of time for development, and not everybody gets to experience the bonus game, which is where the theme song plays. So like you have to really think, how do we get this across like in five seconds, <laughs> and then make them want to keep playing for however
1: long they play without getting totally bored. I bet they're coming back together I bet they were video games and slot machine sounds were together because of the hardware limitations and then they kind of diverged but now with online games and apps they're kind of like melded again because the experience is so similar when you're online like the slot machine in the casino it's different than playing video games but when you're online the experience of playing an app and a Slot machine is kind of similar. So I bet the music is similar.
4: They both seem to have gone more cinematic, in general too, like video games and slot machines too. there's there's a cinematic quality to a lot of slot machines.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but some, like we were talking about, it seems like some sounds you guys (coughs) still bring from like the old one-arm bandit machines and work that in.
1: Yeah, you got to sound there's, like you're winning. So mm-hmm. that's what that sounds like. All-
5: <laughs> there, <there's laughs> a, there is a history from from which we're built on and, and drawing from, and you can sort of dip in that. I was I was just thinking about um, how we we have sort of like two two levels, and I'm trying to think of the last time I've played a video game that had that same. Like you you're you're immersed in a narrative, and then with slot machines there's also the awareness like outside of that narrative that you're playing for money or you're winning or you're losing and so uh, musically speaking there's times when we are actively drawing the player out of the narrative to that space where they're realizing oh my gosh this is a big win or i almost got that feature or something like that so they're there's two worlds that you're composing within. Sure.
0: Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people listening will be thinking, how do I get a job at this place? <laughs> how would you do that?
10: Uh, f- <laughs> wow.
6: <laughs> I would say, you know, the way I got the job is I did mention liberal use of drugs and alcohol <laughs> uh, but well let, let me put it this way I, I, I stopped trying to sell myself to other people's needs and you know as a composer you know it's like I, I noticed that the, I got more work when I did what I wanted to do and that's what attracted people. They said, oh, well, we want that kind of thing, the stuff that you're doing for yourself. It's like the food you cook for yourself might have more flavor or be a lot more identified with like something about you than the food you might cook for somebody else, which could be perfectly great, but it might lack some of the character because you're, you're, you're not invested in it. So I would, I would uh, although there, you, you need to have a strong commercial grip on the tools that your, your competitors have and you need to know how to work them, I think you also need to let yourself find yourself you know, and shine through as something that purely is showing some joy from who you are. And, and that has helped me not only with my own career trajectory but also be able to evaluate and hire people because I've been able to see, like, oh, they, they're driven by their own passions and yet they're they're willing to accept and learn the technology and use it and, you know, be educated and also mu- musical knowledge. Uh, it, it, those things are sort of given. So follow your dreams. Do what you like. <laughs> nice.
0: Well, um, maybe it'd be kind of fun to just, like, take a quick audio tour around here at High Five yeah. Games and...
4: This is Charlie's first time seeing it. Too. This is like this is totally. We'll so this is yeah. This is the bullpen. yeah, so it's kind of like, like
0: the, everybody has a desk around here and yeah. a keyboard or guitars. Chairs, mostly composers out here, and Butterly, who is our.
4: Yeah. some. Everyone's got speakers and headphones, a uh, keyboard set up. We've got a couple instruments out here.
1: Copy machine. <laughs> <Some bass. laughs> yeah, the
0: Very the important office, for the
1: office. Yeah. Carpet on the <laughs>
4: floor. Yeah. yeah. A a Some sample libraries. <laughs> Toy piano. We call, we call that the roll up We've got an oud. We've got a broken oud. Yeah. Oh. Broken oud would be a yeah.
0: good name for
6: a band. Broken oud.
0: I feel like those things or must break you. a lot. because um, yeah. the
4: They're
1: always broken. Somebody's always got a broken oud. <laughs> yep. My girlfriend had a broken oud. So. <laughs> oh, like I think it was broken too, by me. I do <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, back here is the... Uh, Matt, would you like to lead him down the hallway?
5: Uh, Sure. Uh, Rarely do people make it down to my my, uh, cave. Vocal booths? This is a hallway of uh, Aldo's booth, his office, and then uh, two vocal booths that if composers who are out in the bullpen want to work more with speakers so they're not bothering other people, you can go in the vocal booth.
4: Often we use this for, like, recording quick vocal things that we wouldn't do in the in the main studio yeah or like, woohoo
1: yeah big win
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly uh, or or, or like guitar like I'll, I'll come in here and record guitar stuff because even you know an unplugged electric guitar is a little bit distracting in that
0: close of quarters
1: especially so with, with you a, playing it yeah, well, yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 although i saw your double bass is that your bass That's my double bass there? yeah mm-hmm. Yep. yep.
4: That that's usually more like. Um, sometimes we just we just play for the heck of it. Just too. for fun. Yeah, just just for fun. So. Uh, you play them out to lunch too sometimes. Yeah, I play
5: them out to lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then, uh, at the at the end of the hall, um, my office is one of the vocal booths. Um, oh, So nice. I am lucky enough to work with be able to work with speakers throughout the day. Oh, that's. And good. then um, I've got. Mike set up. Uh, I'm a percussionist by trade, or you know, that's my background. So, having my frame drums and uh, you know, I think percussion got the vibes set up that I can just play whatever hand percussion that I can right here at my desk. And uh, sometimes, like, I'll compose beginning from creating rhythms in that way and then work harmony melody up from there. Yeah, because
0: nice. I suppose like percussion is such a huge part of these slot machine it is. music. Do you do it pretty much all live recording or do you do samples of some percussion stuff? I do.
5: Um, it, it's uh, very helpful to like throw in loops to get ideas going and then use that as kind of like the rough and then be able to record live drums. And what's... What I really enjoy about uh, this work is that with the full recording facilities here, if anyone needs more of a live feel, whatever, they can ask me, and I can go in. And most of my percussion equipment is here at work, so I can pull in my timpani and record that. It's probably like the only timpani in the World Trade Center. I'm <laughs> I think guessing. So. Yeah. Well, what's funny is. Having to do a gig in town where I'm here after hours bringing my timpani down the uh, service elevators and the guys in loading dock are like, what's this guy doing? You know, and I'm like, OK, I'll be back in five hours after the gig. <laughs> and, and there's nowhere to park around here because it's all like uh. authorized parking. Closest I can get is like a block and a half, so I'm like wheeling timpani oh, no. <laughs> around the World Trade Center to get to the gig. It's, it's oh man. pretty ridiculous.
0: Do you play with like orchestras around here, or what? What do you? It'll be usually it'll be, doing um,
5: the classical stuff. I don't do as much because that's a, a really uh, tight community, and having moved here just uh, like eight years ago, and not having gone through, like, the education system, you know, where, like, you're getting years of knowing people and stuff like that. I do pick up gigs, you know, with, like, a church choir, like, a brass quintet and stuff like that. Other... Cool. more, Much more often, I'm playing drum kit and stuff like that with rock bands and cool. things like that. Yeah.
1: You want to see the, uh, yeah. the studio? The,
5: the, the full... Yeah. yeah.
6: This is-
1: it's kind of cool in that I mean this is not the
6: the,
9: I didn't know the that. largest yeah. space,
1: but it's kind of cool that it's in you know the 59th floor at the center of the trade center tower. Yeah. yeah. You're really in the in this quiet room, floating above the world. Yeah. here. <laughs> just kind of cool.
4: Yeah. <laughs> this is the big the big room. And there's actually a little ISO booth in here too. Oh. Really heavy duty doors. Yeah. Pretty adequately soundproofed in
0: here. Yeah.
8: The mastering engineer and I covered the walls and this stuff
0: because otherwise it actually sounded like a reverb chamber yeah. here. Yeah,
8: there was a lot of bouncing. Just yeah, oh. I think the angles the of the shape. walls. Yeah, and out here in the live room, before we filled it with acoustic paneling, you'd clap and it would play like middle C. It was really bad. <laughs> so...
0: Well, I realized I forgot to have you guys ask a question for the next guest. So the next guy I'm talking to is Chris Hagen, who's a film composer, and he teaches at NYU. So I'm right. going over there and like, actually, like... Three you're late! Ago. Five minutes. <laughs> okay. All right,
5: we'll make this quick. What's your favorite color? <laughs> <laughs> Of, of sound. Yeah. Of there you go.
0: Okay, <laughs> there we go. That's a good question. Nice. <laughs> um, uh, I'm kidding. That was a little bit. <laughs> we can do better. We can. Than that. Okay. Um, if you guys want to know. Uh,
4: How about Matt Maria or Mike? Because we got to we yeah, got to we ask did, the question did, in the last did, uh, interview. Do you have so a, a, a
0: question you'd want to?
4: That uh, a film composer should.
9: Mm-hmm.
4: Film composer
1: and a. In academia? Yeah. Yeah,
4: hold them accountable for something.
0: Hmm. How do you switch headspaces between commercial composing and teaching students imparting your wisdom? Because I take it he's simultaneously doing these things. Yeah. that's, That's a good question. Yeah. Well, I thought about it for a long time. <laughs> 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 I edited out like thirty minutes of so her okay. thinking about that question. <laughs> or you could
5: you no, could pose the really question should. and then we do the whole interview.
0: All right, Aldo, and you then you'll you got it. Okay, well I have to head out too. Okay, so perfect. Um, yeah. <laughs> It was great hanging out with you guys. I wish I could hang out a little longer. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. enjoy, enjoy yeah. your
5: travels I hope you get a
4: walk around the office before you yeah, go, we'll at take least. Take a quick just
0: lap. Run. Yeah. Sure. We'll just, I'll just run. Just do a run
7: yeah.
4: lap around. Yeah. Okay. You yeah, like gym class again. Love that, just run <laughs> Should we get a picture? Should
0: we get a group picture? Oh, yeah. yeah, we do. Oh, okay. We should.
4: Let's get a group picture up by the statue. Look at you.
10: And so, in creating, even with limited resources, I love being resourceful, but realize there's a lot of false imagery out there. I get disturbed when I see these press reviews. You may have seen a lot of them that refer to so and so upcoming producer is hitting the charts or is on the scene. They're written all the same way. See the same thing for these music sample packs. They're saying, these are the drums you need for your chart hits, yo. And being consumer is not problematic in itself, but falling into these traps of something that is not you.
0: NYU with Chris Hagen, film composer and professor here at NYU. Yes, uh, yeah.
7: great to meet you and be here with you.
0: Yeah. So tell me, um,
7: NYU, you,
0: you've, how long have you been teaching here?
7: Um, this is my second semester, and I'm, I'm teaching private students uh, film composition. So I don't have classes here, but I have uh, now a bunch of private students and undergrads and master's students and it's just great we go through writing skills we go through a lot of business skills that composers need and a lot of technology work you know how to mock up the best demos sounds programming so it's really uh, we cover a lot of stuff you know because it's not just about writing music yeah that's a part of it but there's a lot of other stuff that goes into building a career in this business
0: yeah you are saying your, your approach is maybe a little different than...
7: Uh, yeah, classic. I mean, I, I'm kind of at an age where I've kind of come out of some of the older school stuff, but I am also have embraced the technology a lot and realized that that's a very important part of surviving. So I'm very, very um, dedicated to giving them those skills to create good-sounding demos, to understand that, you know, it's not just about writing good music, that the level of what people expect sonically is sky-high. And we have to be close. You don't want to lose a job because your samples suck. Yeah. You know, and it can happen. Yeah. You know, and you cannot expect people that aren't musicians or composers or songwriters to go, oh, yeah, you know, with the live bass clarinet, it's going to be great. They won't get it. And they will be taken out of the moment. And if people are taken out of the moment emotionally, they, it's going to be very hard to land a job.
0: Yeah. What, what do you recommend for people who can't? Quite afford like amazing sample library.
7: Yeah, I mean, I think you know. I mean, there's some stuff. I think there's like some some. I don't want to say basic because now it's not always basic. But like, if you start out with like, if you're working the Logic or Cubase, you know, get contact Complete Eleven. You know, get something that gives you a good overview of quality samples, and just slowly start to build. Like, if your strength is you know you're a really good orchestral writer, well then you gotta invest in some string libraries. You know, and this Spitfire stuff or whatever. Just you know slowly invest in the stuff that plays up your specialty right and I don't think you have to spend a fortune but you have to make it a part in your life you know I mean, I don't, yeah. eat, more, eat more ramen and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. have a few less beers I don't yeah. know <laughs> I'm kidding but sort of not you know you, you yeah. gotta make it a priority to figure out a way to get some good sounds and and it can be you know tiered and do it when you can but like, you, know, you gotta have good pianos you can't be using like default pianos that have no resonance and no warmth yeah you no know, stuff like that
0: so what
7: is like, one of the main
0: stumbling blocks you, you get with your students? Like Where do they get stuck on most? What do they get
7: stuck on? Uh, workflow. Uh, overthinking. Which I understand when you're young. You know, it, it, I, I'm always trying to push them to trust their inherent instincts. It doesn't mean all of ours are right, but all of ours are very unique to what we have inside of us. Uh, and I'm also very much into promoting their personality in music. And every time I ask all of them who are some of your favorite film composers? 99% of the time, they all mention, like, you know, uh, Elfman or Brian or Carter Burwell. People with very strong personal, you know, unique personal sounds. And I believe that's ultimately going to get them to uh, have a real identity in his business more. So it's that. Look, do we have to be flexible and comp a lot of different styles? Absolutely. But I'd rather them start thinking out of the box and getting slowly understanding those skills. I think if you start out watering down or that whatever that word is and you know um, you just don't end up really trusting your inherent musicality so that's number one you know workflow deadlines and just creating good sounding demos you know fast Uh, when I came here one of the things I realized was you know they give them great writing assignments but I'm condensing those into very very close time frames they keep asking me where's the writing assignment for next week I'm like you're going to get it two days before because you don't get seven days in the real world to write a three-minute cue, you know? Yeah. So that's the way that I think you have to gain that trust and the confidence. Yeah.
0: So are, are you from New York
7: originally? Yeah, I was born in Queens, brought up in New York, and I've been living here on the Upper West Side, and uh, New York's a big part of my musical identity. I, with that said, I go to Los Angeles a lot, and I have a lot of contacts there and friends. Sure. How
0: do you get your start in... New York as a
7: composer. Yeah, well, I was originally a trumpet player and I went to performing arts high school and my dad was a professional trumpet player, so I got my love of music through him. All through that, I was writing on my own. I was always very fascinated by music in general, but composing, but film music and used to, as a kid, like, you know, look at The Godfather and put different music on against it or films I liked or Back to the Future or whatever. I was fascinated by how um, a certain type of music could completely change the perception of the scene. Then I got into uh, Manhattan School of Music as a performance maker, trumpet player, and I loved it. Trumpet's a beautiful instrument. I didn't have that burning desire to perform, and I tried out kind of on a whim for the classical composition department. I, I kind of couldn't believe I got in. And they said, look, you know, you're really rough, you're raw, but you're good, you know. So, and then I switched over and became a classical composition maker, and I studied with John Corigliano and a couple of amazing teachers over there got a school, and that was right at the point of time where, like, you know, MIDI and, like, okay, great. You know, no one's going to hire me. I mean, I knew I wasn't, you know, Steve Reich or those guys. I wasn't going to get those those abilities to, like, get huge amounts of money, commissions. And I got into commercials. At that era, you, know, you could make good money in commercials if you really busted your ass <laughs> and bought all the technology, which was very different than what we use today, and just kind of said, I'm going to take the next couple of years to learn how to write music and understand commercial music and work the picture and even though it's you know truncated forms, thirty seconds, sixty seconds, you know, skills of working quick, working under deadlines, dealing with clients, you know, all stuff. Prepared me really well. And then I kinda made my my merge into indie films and basically just quit doing commercials and said, That's it, I'm done with that. Yeah. Which was risky. I took a massive hit financially, but it wasn't in my heart anymore. I wanted to do film and I, didn't, I, I thought that they would both corrupt one would corrupt the other, you know, in a way. You can't be like this, you know, working sixteen hours a day on commercials, and and then really, you know, be able to go back at home and say, "Well, I'm going to really pursue film and for what all that's about, and dig into my soul and stuff." I just don't want to do that. So that okay. was it. Started building my career. Yeah. And now here, you just scored the Infiltrator uh-huh. with Brian Cranston and Yep, Dan um, Kruger, Don Leguizamo. Yeah. Benjamin Bratt.
0: Yeah. And you kind of did. You, you kind of went back to maybe your roots ah, an exactly. who would have thought guy? my
7: age would have been a benefit <laughs> yes so I grew up you know I knew the 80s stuff going up right and um, the score as you know the film takes place in the late 80s so a lot of the part of what Brad Furman the director and I wanted to create was we wanted to have that sound but we certainly didn't want to do anything that was uh, cliche of that or just rely on that I mean I wasn't trying to create Mammy Vice or, or you know what is the Eddie Murphy comedy you know the Faltermeyer did the score uh, oh, oh, um, A Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, yeah I and mean, that wasn't the sound of this film. It's a serious film. It's an emotional film. So I, our big challenge was, how do I find those textures and those sounds and turn it into my own thing? And I kind of did that by, you know, listening to a lot of scores of that era, but then also combining my own inherent instincts. And, you know, it, the score is kind of a, a combination of the 80s since with a very lot of ambient textures that I've kind of processed and a big string section that creates a lot of the emotional fabric for the film.
0: some some of this and why do you story? get that
7: impression it sounds uh, it sounds like well, it's riddled with uh, oh no just the, from uh, another okay. interview But <laughs> you're exactly right no <laughs> yeah. no it, it was just you know it, things coincide with life and I was going through some hard stuff personally then and sleep was not just my strong point so I'm like okay if I ain't going to sleep I'm going to write music right and I do think that you can always channel something in your life into something positive so I did a lot of these very personal cues you know the film on the onset you know yeah it's Median drug cartel it's cocaine but really the majority of what is is told in the film is the emotional journey of this character and his inherent uh, Cranston character the inherent conflict about him feeling guilty about setting somebody up to go to jail for a long time and once he became friendly with this one specific character uh, Caino uh, uh, Caino that's a big part of what defines the film so so the emotional stuff is what I was tapping into and you know as a dad and stuff and how would I feel if I like had to make that choice and how would I feel if I was a dad who lived a whole second life second identity wasn't near my family for over a year and you know all that stuff and is, is that a, you know, is that a choice you make you know in your kid's life for a long amount of time you know so I tried to just in my own way use all that stuff to create some of those emotional themes yeah Well, here's a question I
0: sometimes ask people. Do you have a favorite chord? Uh, (laughs) Wow, I like that.
7: Ooh, man. Wow. Um, I always liked E minor with a six, added six. It's, you know, I mean, I grew up with jazz, so I know all those extended chords. Something about an E minor with a six, I don't know, a six and a nine maybe, that's really cool. Um, Love that one, just the way it resonates. And then I do enjoy writing in B-flat a lot. Huh. I think that's because of my trumpet, trumpet playing roots. Yeah, sure. exactly. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there we go. Cool.
0: How much of your scoring, outside of Infiltrator, uses like live instruments?
7: Uh-huh. Uh I am—that's a big composer's, uh, you know, journey now. And I am hell bent on—I've put live instruments on everything I've always done, unless it's just something super specific that, you know all dependent on budget and restrictions. But, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there's no way, if needed, a composer should ever make a choice not to put a live player or two on the score. It just, I mean, people connect to that emotion. It'll make your music better. It'll make your writing better. It'll make everything better. So um, everything I do has some live element. And the Infiltrator, obviously, was a big enough budget where I was able to put a 30-piece string section. And that was the choice, just to do the strings live and everything else was the synths and the programming. Um... But I was trying to think of the last couple projects I just did a TV pro- uh, project series called Startup for Sony Crackle and even that I have some guitars on so I would say everything I do has some live element and, and you know as a composer you learn the skills of how to maximize the few players that you might have because it's not easy with what's going on with the budgets and the package deals it's you know it's a lot falls on the composer we've become you know Number crunchers, you know, and that's—I don't know about you—but that's not my best skill. <laughs> no. I never thought I'd do any of <laughs> that stuff. It's like, you know, the old Joe like, Cat as a musician get a million dollars, give him five million. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like, you know, when you get a when you get this package deal and this lump sum of money, and you have to manage every aspect of it, it's hard. Yeah. But to me, the one you don't sacrifice on is the inherent emotion of the score. And if that requires bringing a guitarist in or a woodwind player, you do it.
0: Yeah. I always do. Yeah. So you're also in a position at the Society of Composers and
7: Lyricists, Uh the SCL, in New York specifically. Yeah. Uh,
0: So, could you tell people a little bit about that? Well, it's a
7: wonderful uh, composer songwriter based organization. Uh, You know, and it's not a union, but it's it's what we have. Um, I've been a part of the steering committee in the New York chapter for almost five years now, and uh, we do some amazing, amazing um, seminars and workshops. You know uh creative, technical uh, advocacy, which is a big thing now we all have to deal with, but one of the things I'm super proud of uh, is this creating that sense of community. And you know composers, songwriters, you know, by and large, we're all like you know people that stay in a room by ourselves, and I think that that's been counterproductive to the evolution of where we are. And I think any sense that you can have to community and people that you know you can go to someone for advice, oh my God, you know. I dealt with that thing in my contract. Be careful. Or this or listen to my mix. Is there too much reverb? You know, I mean, anything like that is beautiful because we need to support each other. And uh, one of the things I'm most proud of is the mentorship program that we started, which has really become quite a little um, mini school. And it's we do two of them a year. We're just starting our fall one now. And we've had up to 30, 40 submissions at times. We usually take between six and eight. And we create a boot camp, Many like you know it's it's a boot camp session there's like one session a week there's writing assignments but my goal with it was it to be that bridge between getting out of school and understanding now how to be a professional and what it's going to take and you know real world experience and they are making connections with composers like me Tristan Clopet who's a brilliantly talented young composer working Man Infiltrator and has done some co-writing with me I met him in that mentorship so like that's a beautiful thing to be able to say to people is how you can get to work with another composer and you know spread your wings
0: so. yeah what advice would you have for people who want to then like
7: meet filmmakers um, mm-hmm. and it's literally the most important thing that a composer <laughs> can ever do you're going to laugh when I tell you this I tell some of my NYU students here you go to the coffee shop look for the directors you'll find them with the rolled up pants the ones that look like they're from Williamsburg I laugh no, you laugh like you know, hey man what do you do here and start a conversation you have to get to know filmmakers Brad Furman who I worked with on Infiltrator I've known him for 21 years I didn't go to NYU but I met him when he came out of NYU and I said this guy is going to be really brilliant I just want to like work with him and we stayed friends and invest in those relationships you know show them that you're like you're the collaborator for them that, that will never let them down go to bat for them don't worry about money about certain things you know let them trust you. Let them understand that any vulnerabilities they might have about talking about music don't mean anything because you get them. You understand what's in them, and stay in their life. You know, go to you know seminars. You can do some networking stuff. You can do. There's clearly more in L.A., but it's just about personally connecting with them. And that's the thing. It's like sending reels. Great, who knows? You know, who knows if anyone listens to anything? You know, they're all inundated. But I believe you'll learn more about a filmmaker having a beer with him and letting him tell you about films that he loved going up than him talking specifically about his work because that's so personal and so specific you know and just you know stay listen show them that you listen that's the most important tool we have as a composer you gotta listen yeah um, yeah. yeah get out there you know get your music out there and, and, and be a problem solver if, if you know directors work on a specific genre and he's maybe you know doesn't have a composer you know say hey can I send you some stuff to your editor or can you edit some stuff and see if you like it you know that kind of stuff yeah
0: so I have a question chain on this podcast from guest to guest oh so oh god it's not like my mortal enemy is sending (laughs) a question. I don't think I have one but Um, so the last people I talked to are slot machine composers at High 5 games uh, in the world trade center Mm -hmm. they asked this question like half an hour ago where, okay great fresh um, off the presses. Yes. they were wondering how do you balance your creative composing life and how and teaching mm-hmm. and like how does that Good differ morning. for you
7: yeah well the teaching is a little newer for me at least in the structured uh, organization here so for me you know I'm not on faculty so I, it's really a one day commitment for me and it's one day I teach all my students it's more than one day because then you're working on assignments and stuff um Look, the priority for me right now is whatever I'm doing is the priority. Like, so when I'm here, you know, Monday, I give my students full attention. I'm not like you know, checking emails and working in another angle. As best as you can, you need to be present. But you know, with where I am in my career now, it's super important that I capitalize on whatever traction I get from infiltrator, and I have a couple other things pending. So I just think they, you know, you make it work, and sometimes one distracting you from the other is awesome. Because some days, you know, like one day I remember last year I had my students and I was like really needed to work on some cues and I was like oh god I need the time you know and I said no let me, let me go hang with my because I learned a lot from them you know and I came in and I, I did my teaching for a couple hours and I went back home and I just had a great writing day and I think part of it was it got me away from my setup you know it's all good and then, so in some ways it helps your time management even more because you start to really focus in on like you know I'm good at that normally but it's even better like okay my writing time is going to be five to ten at night instead of Tend to then. I'll make it work, you know? So, yeah, you just figure it out. You just have to never resent one for the other. That's the whole key, and I never do.
0: Cool. That seems like a good life lesson yeah, in general. Yeah. Like, Yo, absolutely, yeah.
7: yeah. And, you know, you, everything you take, you, you take on fully and commit to it.
0: Yeah. Well, Chris, do you have a question for my next guest?
7: I, I, I'll go with what I said before, is how does this creator put their own personality into their music and what they do to, to um, what's their process to make sure that their unique voice comes through in their music
0: cool yeah. well Chris um, if
7: people want to check your stuff out uh, where should they yeah well my it? website uh, is uh, com. I have stuff on SoundCloud and you know there's clips of my films and stuff out there and Infiltrator is coming out on uh, iTunes movies and I think it will be on Netflix soon and it opens in, uh, in England today The UK, so.
0: Oh, congrats on that. Thanks for
7: taking time to get to know me, man. Yeah, have a mess. (laughs)
0: Thanks, Thanks.
2: Is now being recorded.
11: Hey,
3: Swingy. Hey, Charlie, how you doing?
12: I'm doing well in New York City. I got to meet up with a film composer and film composition teacher. Uh, his name's Chris Kajian. Mm. Yeah, that was cool. He's He was um, born and raised in New York. Uh, definitely had the faster style of talking. Thick New York accent. Um, yeah, was yeah. really fun talking to him. So I wonder what he thinks of my accent. And, like, probably everyone who listens to this podcast thinks, oh, man, he is so <laughs> Minnesotan.
9: <laughs>
3: oh, that's, that's funny. Was there any uh, nuggets from that uh, interview? Any, any interesting... Things you learned or something maybe that surprised you when you talked to them?
12: Yeah. Yeah, one thing that stuck with me was kind of that, as a film composer, he really pushes for his students uh, to have a unique voice as a composer. And, yeah, although it is important to, like, bend to the wishes of the directors at some points, he was saying that just, it's better to have your own creative style and that'll distinguish you a little bit in the film composing world cuz you know a lot of people can do that classic like hollywood style that's really popular right now whatever that may be like epic movie style or touching indie film style i don't know i feel like they're a yeah, quirky <laughs> commercial music, yeah, and I've done my share of those, uh, but yeah, it just inspired me to try and take a little more chances with film scores, and as a director, what? how do you feel about that? Like, you tend to just want the music to not really, I mean, obviously you want the music to be cool and artistic, but... And sometimes I'm sure you just have to say, like, well, it just has to fit the mood and not stand out too much. I don't know. What do you think?
3: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, It's always, you know, from moment to moment, kind of case by case. And uh, for me, like, what I think about it, it's, it's a tool to evoke a particular emotion or build suspense. So it depends on from, you know, scene to scene what that is. Uh I'm not particularly great uh or well versed in music and composing, so I, I I rely on the composer to really bring you know, to bring what they have to the table and you know, translate the thoughts uh that I have. Um and this actually reminds me of something I saw recently and I wish I could remember the name of the composer. Um but it was this um one of those film table discussions between a bunch of composers and one of them said that there's something with, you know, the young kids these days, you know, making movies, they all say, uh, a good score is one that should be invisible, one that you should not notice it, and this guy, he's like, back in my day, I noticed every single note when I was watching a movie, you know? And it's like oh, yeah. there's a different kind of uh, cultural norm, I guess, uh, in film composing yeah. now compared to then.
12: I think I just watched this too. Was it? I think that was Danny Elfman who was talking about. This. Yeah,
3: that's, that sounds
12: right. Was that the Every Frame of Painting video?
3: Oh, uh, that's what I thought. It was a clip from there. Yeah, they're talking about the yeah. <laughs> the Avengers and Temp music and all the Marvel movies. Yeah,
12: why? Yeah, that was a super interesting take on, like, why don't people remember the melodies of Avengers movies and Marvel movies? But, yeah, it's, it's because they're meant to be kind of background-y and they don't take too many chances, so... It's
3: like... Uh, you know, mitigating risks. You know, like, these large, large film companies are mitigating risks where they can, you know, by using the temp music or going with something that they know works. Uh, When it comes to creating something new, uh, it's probably in your best interest to take risks, to really push your boundaries
12: and find something new. Yeah. Well, here's to taking
3: risks. <laughs>
12: Calculated risks.
3: Calculated risks. Uh, that's what you're doing right now on your road trip.
12: Yeah, for sure.
2: EU for ten is the last one with this song. All right. Okay. thanks. Thank
8: you very
0: much. Yeah. What's your name? Juan. Juan Castillo. Where are we right now? Just for for my listeners, where are we located?
5: We are located in Times Square, the center of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Times Square.
0: How long have you been busking here? Oh, long time. Yeah. Twenty-three years. I used to play outside the street. And where are you from originally? Uh, I was born in Chile, oh. at the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> the land of the poets, yeah. to another prize in poetry. Cool. Well, take so, care. What's your oh, name? Charlie. Charlie? Yeah. You compose do. music? Yeah, I do. I do songwriting and um, oh. I'm on a world tour right now for oh, my nice. podcast. Do you mind if I record a little bit more of you playing? Oh. Oh.
2: Back
0: Invention 13. <laughs> Good. It's hey, good to see you. Yeah, you too. I am. I was recording on the subway. Uh huh. Just trying to get sound effects. I thought I thought I had like, you know, several stops to go, uh-huh. but I didn't realize it was like an express. Training, oh yeah. So I just jumped off at the oh. last second. And I'm still <laughs> recording. So. Cool. Ben Hansbury, you're on Composer Quest. Wow. Happy to be here, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about it for a long time, but. But so, yeah, we'll we'll get some lunch okay. and then uh, maybe record All a right. little bit later. Sounds good. We just had some delicious New York pizza. Yeah, and I'm glad we got to meet up even for a little bit. I know you're going to be going back to teach at Columbia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So tell me about like your teaching here. You're adjunct professor. Um, Columbia and NYU?
11: So at Columbia, I'm a PhD candidate in music theory, and part of my degree program involves teaching and TAing music theory courses. And yeah, at NYU, I'm an adjunct instructor, uh, and I'm teaching music theory down there as well.
0: So in the previous episode, I interviewed some people who are like in the midst of grad school, and you're nearing the end of it. So, any tips for people? In the process?
11: Yeah. Graduate school for music theory and graduate school for composition are quite different nowadays. It used to be that if you went to get a graduate degree like this, it was in music theory and composition. And in the past, oh, 20 years or so, uh, it's really split so that, you know, composers at Columbia, for instance, get DMAs, Doctorate of Musical Arts, um, and theorists get PhDs. As I sort of look towards my future and the job market, one thing I would say to composers is make sure you kind of keep up your theory chops, because uh, there aren't that many, especially academic jobs out there that are just teaching composition. You'll oftentimes be expected to teach theory, and um, while i realize that I am encouraging people to compete with me for jobs, uh, you know, making sure that... you have strong theory chops is really, I mean, it's helpful when you're on the job market, but I also think that it can help make you uh, conversant with other people about your music. Um, You know, sometimes I've I've been in an interview and they've asked me, okay, so you're a music theorist. Why would one of my composition students want to take a class with you? And to me, that question really is asking you know, what is the value of higher level music theory to someone who's not a researcher, but an artist, a composer? And the answer that I gave, and I still, I I think this was a good answer, is that not only is music theory, you know, it's not just about labeling chords and getting the inversion right, or, you know, don't write perfect fifths or something like that. That's what undergrad music theory is about, but real music theory, what you do after you've mastered those basics is it's about uh, expressing something that's happening musically, and that might be, uh, in my case, as an analyst, a music analyst, it's usually about my experience. How can I express what it is to have a certain kind of musical experience? How can I communicate what I'm hearing to someone else? And that, I think,
0: is a skill that, you know, is important for a composer to foster as well. Yeah. So, if you could boil your dissertation down to an uh, elevator pitch, <laughs> what's, the, what's the pitch you give people? Yeah, uh,
11: so, PhD students get a lot of practice doing this. Um, so, my dis- my, I'm very interested in the kinds of concepts that we use when we think and we talk about music. And I'm especially interested in the relationship between the more abstract, kind of what sometimes people think of as the mathy parts of music theory Uh, I'm interested in the relationship between that way of conceptualizing music and musical objects and the ones that are more experience-based, the phenomenal concepts, what it's like to hear uh, a certain chord or a certain kind of music, and so what my dissertation is about is examining some of the different ways that these two perspectives on engaging with music are coordinated in contemporary music theory. And this has effects on not just how we how you know pro- professional music theorists think and talk to each other, but also on our pedagogy. Um, most music theorists do a lot of teaching of basic music theory, and it 's my belief that it 's in these first music theory classes that the kind of basic conceptual framework that you use to think about music maybe for the rest of your life is developed so I think it 's really important for we music theory teachers to be thinking carefully about well how are we thinking about these things and where is the line between the abstract conceptualization that we have of a dominant chord or something like that and the, what it sounds like the, the
0: experiential concept yeah so Ben, what has your experience been like living here in New York City coming from a smaller town in Minnesota eventually making your way here Do you feel at home here yet? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, so I live right up by
11: Columbia, and one of the nice things about New York is that it's so different from place to place. My neighborhood is pretty quiet, but it's really easy to get anywhere from anywhere, basically, if you're on the subway line anyway. And so, you know, my neighborhood is pretty quiet, and I can kind of decide any given day how much New York I want to be in my day. I can just stay home and go to one of the libraries there that's on Columbia's campus and have a pretty quiet day, or, you know, in 25 minutes I can be in midtown, in 40 minutes I can be on the lower west side, and I can kind of decide any given day.
0: I can decide any given day, you know. So just come out on the street and yeah. take in the noise.
11: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially, yeah that especially. Um, the, yeah, it's 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 been really great living here to you know take advantage of the really diverse kinds of art, uh, you know whether that's music or visual art. Um, you know, the being a singer myself, you know, being just 20 minutes from one of the finest opera houses in the world has been a real treat, and that'll be something that I think I'll miss and won't realize how much I'll miss it until that's no longer an option.
0: Yeah, so. You're going to be graduating in the spring, and after that, it's up in the air. You're saying you're kind of a more of a planning guy, and stuff to to know that you won't know about having a job.
11: Til. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so yeah. When I graduate in the spring, it'll be the job hunt weekend. Presumably, by the time I've graduated, I will know what the plan is. But uh, this early in the fall. Um, you know, it's just now that some of the job calls are starting to come out for next year and that whole application season starts and, um, any other young academics who listen to your show kind of know well the drama of the academic job hunt in fall and early spring. Uh, yeah. And, you know, most of those decisions then aren't made until mid spring and we'll just have to see where it goes from there.
0: Yeah. So in the classes you're teaching, what are some of the main things people struggle with music theory wise? Mm -hmm. Um, I think anybody who's taken a
11: music theory class probably knows, even if this wasn't their experience, they know that there are people who just hate it and just think that it is so not valuable for the way that they engage music, you know, how is this going to affect my singing? How is this going to affect my performance? You know, what does studying Bach have to do with me as a composer in the 21st century? Um, and so that I think is always the challenge that I'm trying to address: that it's not about understanding how this specific kind of music works. You know, we don't take music theory so you can learn to write chorales. You take music theory so that you can learn to think more clearly about music and about your musical experience and about your compositional practice and all of those other things and the kinds
0: of things that we study specifically in music theory courses are just ways of exercising that muscle So my most important question, uh, do you still enjoy dancing to Lady Gaga? (laughs) I haven't listened to haven't done that in a really long time
11: (laughs) Um, Yeah, college was a different time in my life apparently (laughs)
0: Well, yeah, I, I am curious, like, for when you've been studying music theory, like, heavily for seven years, like, how, how does that change the way you listen to music, and, like, do you ever just be like, I don't want to listen to music ever again, or... <laughs> Probably
11: not ever again. I definitely, uh, I sometimes find myself not wanting to listen to, especially the music that I study. And in general, I find it hard to not think about what's going on, you know, analytically when I'm listening to music, even for fun. Like, if I'm going for a run, uh, I'm listening to something, I'll then find myself analyzing it. And that's very fun, and I really enjoy doing that. Uh, But I don't always want to have that be the only way that I'm engaging with music. Um, I think, you know, the more that I study music theory and... The more that I teach music, uh, especially to people who have different musical tastes than I do, the less I feel that there is a, you know, better and worse and good and bad genres and ways of doing music and thinking, writing about music and listening to music and thinking about music that, you know, it's all just a matter of what are your motivations, what are you trying to do, and inside of that scope, there may be better or worse kinds of music, but outside of that scope
0: anything is fair game yeah well ben it's been great hanging out with you here thanks charlie yeah, yeah
11: i've been a fan of the pod for a long time so i'm yeah. really happy
0: to talk to you yeah i'm glad it worked out here with matt scuteri Yep, That's uh it. at the gibson showroom mm-hmm. in new york and uh i had no idea like what you were doing here or what this gibson place is so yeah yeah what what is it Uh,
8: Yeah, well, so there's a uh, lot of guitars here. There are a lot of guitars here um, and uh, a lot of other things as well, because we don't just do guitars anymore, Gibson. We have all kinds of uh, pro audio and uh, uh, live sound and all kinds of things that we sell under the Gibson umbrella. And um, so this is a showroom uh, here in New York City. And as, as, I was, as I was saying before, most major markets have one. And the idea is that we are um, an embassy, an artist relations embassy to New York. So our job is to have our ears to the ground, so to speak, as to what's happening in New York and be a resource to artists when they are traveling through the market, if they need something from us. Um, the idea is that you know, Gibson is here for them, to, you know, for, for them to do whatever it is they need to do.
0: So, so what kind of f- fame level of artists who come here have you met? <laughs> uh, pre- uh, like, like pretty famous, <laughs>
8: like yeah, pretty fa- I like you know, um, I don't, I don't know if I can delve into to specifics, but we, we've had some pretty big names come through here. And then actually, this this space was an old recording studio in the uh, mid 90, late '80s to about the mid 2000s. Um, and so you know, there's Bruce Springsteen recorded here, Michael Jackson recorded here, Paul Simon, uh, Mariah Carey, Boys to Men. I have pictures of these people in our <laughs> space. Uh, Billy Joel is one I recently found out because every now and then I'll just be watching an old video and I'll say that looks like my office, and I'll realize it is my office. <laughs> so that's yeah,
0: awesome. that's really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're a guitarist. I take it. I am. Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. and you found out about Composer Quests? How? just a random search? don't search know. Or I, yeah like just a search on
8: uh on podcast gave a couple of your episodes a listen and it was uh it was it was a really good show it was it was well it was very well produced and it was uh informative and I liked the interviews and i kept up with it sweet max and now you're in the, you're in the doing yeah the olympics yeah i actually i should probably grab my phone because my partner's been emailing me all day with uh, with note suggestions it's it's a very kind back and forth. We're like, oh, what an excellent choice. I would like to put a dotted half note. You know, <laughs> we're, very, we're very, very cordial towards each other. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Good. That's... Yeah, so,
0: yeah. The, so for people who don't remember the Olympics thing we're doing right now is table tennis. Mm-hmm. So composers go back and forth as if they're playing ping pong, mm-hmm. um, one note at a time. So I, I'm curious, like, I I was trying to envision how I would do this with someone. I don't. But I don't even. It would be probably kind of tedious over yeah. email.
8: It's 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 not tedious, especially since like you know things come up and like you can't always just be sitting on your email. So you know. So there, there's been some delays. I don't know. We're we're, we're attempting to do a, a a string quartet arrangement, but. I was trying to follow along, and like, because again, I was just doing it over email, so I'm just kind of trying to like hear in my head what I think it sounds like, and you know, obviously I have a lot of guitars here, so I'll just kind of like pick one up and be like, okay, I think that's what it is, and I've long since stopped that, because I don't, I don't know what we're doing anymore, so <laughs> I don't know what it sounds like. He's got the notation software, I'm like, I, I'm hoping it sounds good,
0: but that's, <laughs> we'll that's just find out together, I suppose. Oh, that's great. What was your national anthem submission? Um, I just did
8: the Star Spangled
0: Banner. I, I tried to do
8: it. Actually, I, I I recorded on on one of these pianos in here. Um, I, I I tried to do just like a, a solo piano with a like kind of like a, an ambient bed underneath. Um, my thought was trying to imagine, you know, what an Olympian standing on the podium would kind of be hearing obviously there's a lot of chaos there's a lot of cheering and then i, I imagine whoever this theoretical person just kind of like centering themselves blocking out all that noise and just hearing the national anthem what that would sound like to them
0: You telling me about your podcast idea. Oh, yeah. Potential. Um, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I think it's cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, do you want to describe it a little bit? Like, I
8: had an idea
0: of like a, a series
8: just exploring moments uh, in music that also affected world history. Uh, I mean, the first thing that popped into my head was Billy Joel's tour of the Soviet Union. Which is often credited as a a cultural reason why the Soviet Union eventually fell. If not, you know, obviously not the reason. It was more complicated than that. But you know, definitely a symbolic reason. And you know, subjects like you know when We Are the World came out or Live Aid, um, you know, music to inspire giving and things like that. And I've just it's just something I've been kind of kicking around. I don't really um, have any kind of direction for it yet. Um, uh, You had an idea of. Trying to find people who were there, which I like, uh, and it's proving rather difficult. <laughs> you <They don't, laughs> know, people don't walk around with signs saying yeah. I was there. But you know, uh, well, Woodstock was one too. But yeah. Woodstock people, I feel like, are easy to find. Yeah. They, you know, they, there's It'll been be... many, many stories written about those people. So. Yeah.
0: Well, if anyone listening knows someone who's been at a one of those historical concerts, yeah. Why don't you just email me Charlie at composerquest oh, dot a good com, idea. Yeah. and then. I can put him in touch with you. Yeah, the power of uh,
8: yes, yeah, so anyone within the sound of our voices. Yep. Which, which right
0: now is nobody, but will be somebody. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. So yeah, man. Best of luck with your potential podcast so thank and you. your own and music, all this other yeah. nonsense I'm up to. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. And best Good of luck, luck in the you. Olympics.
8: Yeah, yeah. And best we'll of see. luck to you and the rest of your tour. Absolutely. Thanks.
0: city after a long productive Old day, day yeah.
1: uh, action-packed mostly for you, you a yeah. more,
0: little more action a little more but yeah. you mm-hmm. had the musical action because yeah. i mean writing for slot machines it's just always high energy it is
1: well today i did uh a lot of clicks and uh <laughs> i did uh i did um changing sounds for changing bet amounts it wasn't very glamorous. Oh, <laughs> different. There was a small win. Some it was a lot of uh, interface sounds. But you know, creative interface yeah. sounds. You can't it can't be big wins every day. Yeah. <laughs> You'd just be exhausting.
0: Well, so you didn't do any recording voice recording of
1: um like I shouting
0: did. stuff?
1: I yeah. I didn't. I did use some people going, Yeah but pitched up. <laughs> like a, some cartoon characters, kind of yeah. did some of that. I'm trying to make hip sounding cartoon, like funky cartoon characters today. I guess that was what I was <laughs> doing. A full day.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. you know what? I just realized we forgot to dig into your composer quest theme while I was there. But I yeah. kind of rush out the door.
1: It was yeah. It was quick. I'll I'll send you the send you the material Okay, <laughs> you can pour over it
0: yeah well yeah maybe maybe as your end of the episode challenge uh-huh. you could do something new with the same stems oh yeah I don't know some sort of remix
1: that would be fun actually okay Yeah. I'll do something that.
0: world tour themed yeah maybe like if, uh, if you're gonna remix it
1: Mm -hmm, yeah a little more traveling vibe yeah sort of like plus you're going to international places so there could be a whole you know quote world breakdown world music yeah yeah stretch it out to like six seven minutes (laughs) that
0: sounds awesome
1: thank you for the assignment all right awesome
0: (laughs) thanks for listening to this third episode of my composer quest world tour This episode was sponsored by David Ash, who's my Kickstarter backer and the filmmaker I often work with. Thanks, Dave. Now that intro theme you heard, Remixed, was actually done by Michael Butterly, who was the perfect pitch guy at High Five Games. Jonathan decided to give him a shot at making this remix. So let's listen to Michael's remix one more time.
3: Oh, Charlie, what's next? So Charlie, what's next? let <laughs> <laughs> <So, laughs> nice. we have what's so many. <laughs> <next>? <laughs> Charlie, have... Charlie, what's coming <laughs> okay, up it. next?
12: Okay, we have so many takes. Charlie, Whoa.
3: what's next?
12: Stop asking <laughs> me that. Now I now I really feel like I have no idea what's next.
3: Next time on Charlie's Podcast. Next ta-
12: <laughs> What's next? Well, that's always the question, isn't it? But, in a way, I kind of want to just surprise people. Like, maybe not even preface some of these sections, because, I don't know, it's kind of fun with this season of the podcast not actually doing a very planned out intro to it to these interviews it's kind of just fun on the fly like hey who's Charlie talking to I have no idea and hopefully I remember to say their name at least so people can look them up <laughs> I love it well I think we got this one in the bag wait in the can yeah it's in the in bag it's
3: in the can in the <laughs> bag with the can in the
12: in the box with the yeah All right. (laughs) We'll talk to you later, Swingy. Safe
9: travels, Charles.